17 of Chin Music, a podcast done by Fancrafts. My name is Kevin Goldstein in hot and muggy DeKalb, Illinois. And it's just, it's been too long since we've had a co-host in New York. It's been at least two weeks. And so joining us is uh, one of my favorite people in the world. And an answer to a to a, a obscure trivia question, who was the co-host for the very first episode of Chin Music? And returning to the co-host chair is uh, one of the founders of Defector Media uh, the founder of the classical, former Deadspin. You can find his sports and political writing at oh all sorts of places, and uh, in, from his palatial estate on the island of Manhattan, it's the wonderful David Roth. David, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for mentioning how large my estate is. A lot of people don't know that I have an outbuilding that's just a <laughs> podcast studio. It's right by the stables. So if you listen carefully, you might be able to hear my horses in the background. Yeah, I, I, I remember you when you were on that Escape to that Chateau show, and they featured your... <laughs> where, where you are. <laughs> Anything that can be described as a compound, I aspire to. Not in a... <laughs> Not in a cult sort of way. I just like having a lot of buildings on my property. I'm going to be honest with you. I would love to have a compound that also did have cult attachments. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, if you're going to have a compound, why would you choose not to have an armory on it? Right. If you're going to have a compound, you need to have followers. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. That's that's what I want. I'm, everybody that has ever retweeted me, like, come live on this property with me. There's lean-tos <laughs> for all. And we're just gonna we're gonna stay up like for like five straight days to open our minds and then see what happens. And just when it, we're just gonna make memes. <laughs> it's gonna be. I saw one today that was uh, it's like a new meme format, and like I'm in my middle age, like that's objectively where I am in the trajectory of my life. Yeah. And uh, there's still something. There's a weird uh, and kind of shameful thrill at being like 43 years old and being like, ah, new meme format. I love it. <laughs> I'll be honest. Let's see so what I'm, they do with this one. Right. I'm 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 fifty-two. Um and, and and my wife's a little older than that. And every once in a while, um, we will feel very old and like something will come up on Twitter and, and, and my wife will go, What is this? Do you know what this is about? And I'll just go, No, I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, so everyone's that, talking about it. Why is it funny? I'm like, I, I have no idea. That's that boy, honey. Uh he <laughs> had he has to do it to him, I guess. I don't know. Or this is he's coming. I don't know. Yeah, it is. It's tough. Like that's. I have a very offline wife, and I'm very pleased to like never have to, you know, like some be that, like be that thing. guy who doesn't know. Yeah, or to just have to be like you know explaining it one way or the other, like her being like, "Why is the so what like the damn Daniel thing? What's that about? Like I don't have right. to have that conversation. Like we can right. just talk about like what our days were like. Right. Why is everybody mad at this person? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just don't know. Yeah. Well, that part of very it, mad. I mean, just like the amount of, I mean, she still, you know, has to work and gets stressed out and yeah. is alive in the world and all that. But man, you just really can, 
if you close one tab, or if you, more precisely in her case, if you never open it in the first place. <laughs> the smart move. It's like 75% of the garbage just gets like Thanos snapped out of ingredients. <laughs> out of like completely out of existence. It's pretty nice. Um, yeah. I, I, so I, I tweeted something about Garrett Cole's silly answer to the question about whether he's ever used spider attack before. Um <laughs> How and was it, their response? It got weird. Like a lot of some people with of with big followers like retweeted it and stuff, and then some people started responding to it. And all of a sudden, I realized it got, it got like I don't know viral for me. I guess two thousand likes and a That's bunch a of responses. And then, um, but obviously, also then the people start chiming in because of my past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just turns into this utter shit show. And I'm like still in threads, and people like, keep responding, and I'm still tagged in it, and it keeps going on and on. And it's such, and then. There's this little group of people. Um, it's a small group of this little, uh, like these little like lefty baseball people who fucking hate me. Um, whose politics I would generally agree with, right? Yeah. Uh, but they're just when someone really comes after me, I always like look. Sometimes I just look at their timeline just to go, oh, what's this person like? And and to a to a person, they're all um, extremely online. Well, I mean, yeah, everybody's and extremely like, online. But even more <laughs> so, I'm like, I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, oh, this person took a shot at me 10 minutes ago. Let's look at their timeline. And I have to scroll down through 50 tweets to find where they took their shot at me. Like, they've already tweeted 50 times since that in the yeah. last 10 minutes. And, like, their whole life is just being angry online. And um, I was talking to mutual friend Jeb Lund about this. Mm-hmm. And he has this wonderful theory that I really like, um, which is just that uh, – and lots of this is pandemic-based, but just, like, people are – stressed out they're upset they're angry for all the understandable reasons in the world right and they were ready to be radicalized and they they just found chapa trap house before they found parlor they could have went either direction <laughs> right i think it's true to a certain extent i think you know i know a lot of these people and i think they they have sincere politics i do think yeah. that like this is what twitter sort of as an as a venue in which to yell at people like it re- was unparalleled as that like that was i don't think that it was designed <laughs> as such it's tough cuz like i saw you know i thought your post on it was reasonable i think that people getting mad about the astros stuff is also reasonable i just don't Absolutely. understand exactly where uh where the the two lines cross in this case because i feel like you know, whatever, like, it's your job to write about baseball. If you're going to do a post about it, like, you didn't say anything, like, objectionable to me. And I feel like the really actually objectionable stuff is, like, managers being like, I don't know anything about that. Like, I make a point of not knowing anything about that. That Like, that is still much more, like, there's, like, a whole, there's a conversation to be had about it one way or the other that can be ill-tempered or not. And then there is this whole other non-conversation about it that is running in parallel that is allowed to seemingly just sort of go on undisturbed. And I think that that's where like the startling part about how caught out Cole was by that question. Like to me, you know, and I've talked to people about this a number of times since I don't know how you could not expect to be asked that given what the broader conversation in the game is. And also given that it's fucking June and nothing else is happening. Right. And I feel kind of shitty for saying what I said, which is just like, he should have been better prepared with an answer because in a way I'm saying he should have been better prepared with a shitty answer that, that was more cohesive. Yeah. Or just like no commented. I mean, like that's the part I know it's his job to, to be, you know, focused on, you know, whatever we're on to Cincinnati. Like I get that. It's a very hard thing to be a starting pitcher and like, there may not be time to like craft an appropriately, you know, lawyer languaged and vetted 
uh, comment on something that probably, you know, the short answer to that question is probably just not one that he wants to give. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm 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 not sure because I wasn't there, but I would wager a good money that someone in Yankees PR they they knew in the morning, um, you know, that Garrett Cole had a Zoom availability. That someone in Yankees PR could have said, "Hey, can we help you craft a response to this question, which is going to be coming?" Yeah, and that's the part I feel like you know to a certain extent he was let down there, but I think also to, in another way, like it, again, like if, even if it wasn't on his radar organizationally, like it has to be on theirs. They have to know that this is like yeah, and and like as an aside, like another even you know his own people, if you will, let's just call them that. Um, you know, Garrett Cole's a client. Uh, you know, Scott Boris is his agent. Um, and the Boris Corporation is very good at preparing their players for these kind of things and, and has media training for their players. And you just think someone somewhere would have stepped in and said, you're going to get asked about this and we need to craft an answer. Yeah. Even if it's a shitty answer filled with all sorts of words that, that, that give you as much information as Cole's bad answer did, at least it sounds better. Yeah. It's that pause, man. I mean, like, oh, you can't... Oh, man, that six seconds felt like six minutes. Didn't yeah, it? and you just can't come back from that really right like if you're there and you're getting the like the the windows like rebooting like boom sound showing up on mic (laughs) while you're trying to come up with an answer like it's duffed like it's already duffed and you Uh, can't come back from it so we're already down the road on the stick like we talked about this real briefly before we started um it is june so it's just kind of it's just kind of like moving month if you will i think that's like golf term um so it's not like there's huge stories in baseball as much as teams kind of lining up and figuring out where they are and then the, the trade stuff will happen next month but um like this is the story this is the only story to talk about right now in some ways it is the sticky stuff and we our special guest coming later will be Pritcharoli from the athletic who wrote a, a, a column about how a lot of this is just major league baseball's fault and we'll get into that with her um but this is this is the thing to talk about, which is, and it's a weird situation. You know, I don't. How much do you care about this? Because that that seems to be part of the story, which is, um, I think it's important to, to talk about that. Like, should you care about this? How much should you care about this? Um, everyone's doing it. It doesn't make it right, but everyone's doing it, and you know, Major League Baseball spent. I don't know, a century decriminalizing it. Yeah. And, I mean, and and here we are. To me, that's, I think, the the part of it that's complicated is that, like, it's definitely cheating, right? Like, and nobody likes that. Like, and everybody agrees. But some kind of do. But, yeah, well, the thing to me, though, is, like, the cheating part of it is, like, there's a continuum of that. You know, I think that, like, the thing that I've, like, mostly found myself exercised about or kind of, like, annoyed about is that, like, I feel compelled to care about it more than I actually do because of the fact that it's been so badly handled. Like, if MLB were to be like, all right, like, it's not, we're not just going to pretend that you guys are doing sunblock and rosin and, like, that that's the whole thing now. Like, here's an MLB-branded goo sponsored by, you know, whatever, Allstate, uh, <laughs> that is going to be, and every player can use it and can use as much of it as they want, and it's the only thing they can use. Like, yeah. at that point, to me, the problem is over. Like, if it's a, if it's a matter of there being this kind of, like, underground, uh, you know, teams having chemists, guys, like, coming up with all these, like, weird body horror substances and, the, you know, like, literally letting ball players do chemistry, like, one of the most yeah. dangerous ideas <laughs> you could possibly come up with. <laughs> that, like, all that is, like, what's frustrating about it is that 
there's this inaction from the league and this sort of like weird stilted denial about it. Not necessarily the principle of it. Like, I mean, the principle of it isn't, isn't great, but it's not new either. And like, of course it's like their job to look for an advantage. I just think that at some point it's MLB's job is to make sure that like the pursuit of that advantage is level available equally to everyone and not uh, being abused you know, just in the complete absence of any enforcement or rulemaking. Right. And, and to be clear, I, you know, I, obviously, you know, you have the Josh Donaldson, Garrett Cole stuff, and that's that's its own thing, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of hitters who are fine with, with pitchers tacking up on some level because they don't want 98 miles an hour slipping out of their hand and coming toward their head. They, they yeah. do want these guys having some tact of control. Um, but I, I just, like, even if, you know, we create all-state goo um, available at Amazon. Yeah, they might want to... Branded yeah. different. I, goo was just the first word. That it's came a good word. It's, yeah. it's it's a good Sonic Youth album. I was going to um, say, and a yeah. perfectly fine Sonic Youth record. <laughs> perfectly fine Sonic Youth record is a good way to put it. <laughs> um, but like, even if they had the sponsor goo, I just I still think they're going to have to do something because like you're still going to have Pitcher X going. Well, that's I don't like this stuff. I'm going to use the Spider Tech. Yeah. Because um, I'm going also going to be lifting 100 pound concrete spheres later. <laughs> um, I've have you ever. I've never, I, I mean, I, I believe me, I, I spent significant portions of my early 20s um, high watching strongman competitions on ESPN at <laughs> 2 in the morning. But, um, like, I've never actually touched the stuff. Um, oh, no. I don't I know. Either. And I, I, I kind of wish I could because I do want to get a feel for, like, is this, do, do my hands feel like I just handled gum for a while? Or do my hands feel like um, I put Elmer's glue on them? Or do my hands feel like I just put super glue on them? Yeah. Like, you know, I like, think... I, I want to know, like, what the level is here. Because I just don't know. Me either. And, like, I have touched pine tar. Sure. Pine tar, pine tar is plenty sticky, dude. It's, like, it's really nasty. Yeah. Yeah. And so, to me, like, the idea that there's then a thing that's, like, it's hard to sort of get your head around it because it's like at some point like stickiness is like obviously there's a range of it but like I kind of it's not very pleasant to think about like I never really I was like so three times tackier than pine tar like what does that mean like it's mm-hmm. an it's an adhesive I guess at that point right like right it's not like just like a substance that gives you better grip like the uh, some of those images I guess the Sports Illustrated article of like people holding their their palm up parallel to the ground with a baseball just suspended from it yeah because it was so gross like it's a very rich visual and like at that point like i you know i'm curious about it but i'm not really sure that like as somebody that's like gotten super glue on my hands and stuff like that like so i know that sucks i i definitely wasn't doing it on purpose Right. Uh, but yeah, again, like, I don't, what kind of advantage that gives you, I, I can't even really imagine. Yeah. And I even tried to, I watched some YouTube videos of like some real, like, juice heads using it for its purpose, which is mm-hmm. like the strongman stuff yeah, of like lift, pulling a truck or lift, whatever. Yeah. Lifting a three, it was, it's about lifting a hundred pound concrete ball on, you know, and putting it onto a platform. Um, but I still couldn't get a sense of just how much they were getting. Um, it, it was, it was hard to figure out. Yeah. Um, it's a weird situation because, like, I don't. We're not in a good spot in the sense that I. Once again, here we are, and we're not necessarily talking about baseball. The game being played between the lines, which yeah. seems like a constant in the last twenty-four months. It's it's a Manfred thing to me too. I mean, I think it's definitely true. You know, the are last other sports couple of years, like this, and this is my, I like I, you follow other sports far more than I do. 
Like, is there constantly some sort of non-playing thing going on in football and basketball? It doesn't feel like it from not, the outside. I, I mean, not exactly like this. I think that, like, the issue with baseball is that it's not just this. You know, that it, like, it transitions from, like, oh, there's a capital strike during the offseason. Oh, like, these, you know, front offices have, like, you know, these horrible, you know, cultural deficits yeah. and just, like, abusive workplaces and... Like, so there's always something like the NFL is kind of like that, too. But the stuff that they're rolling is like the always something stuff is like it's the draft. It's the combine. Don't you love football? Like, right. right. With baseball, there seems always to be some sort of uh, like like long ignored semi crisis that everybody is really resentful about having to finally address. Like and that I think is like executive issues like that. That's a Manfred thing. The other thing with baseball that I think is like germane to this particular conversation is that like in basketball there is a conversation or there was more about like was the game broken in some way by you know either by Steph Curry you know in that sort of this beautiful way or by the Rockets in this like button pushing all we do is like threes and free throws and you know like sort of like an attempt to sort of manipulate the game and optimize it into something that's like way less fun to watch and it, less it, recognizably a game, you know. And did it work? Well, I mean, not really. Like, they didn't win a cha- I know they didn't win a championship. They didn't. They, were, they, they won, were good for a while, though, right? Yeah, they were really good. And Harden, you know, like became a, like one of the most fearsome offensive forces I've seen. The issue, though, is that like it didn't. It wasn't the sort of thing where you feel like basketball necessarily suffered as a result like at the game the game did i mean it might be that this is like whistling past the graveyard you know that like when, by the time we get to the finals i will be sick of it but like i've been watching the nba playoffs and i love it like mm. there are there's a decent diversity of styles there's you know the teams that are good are good in different ways or different enough ways that there's some sort of ability to like you know, have like a styles make fights sort of enjoyment of watching a game, even if you don't have a rooting interest, you know, that you're, and the, you know, the, and the individual virtuosity is great. With baseball, I think the reason that, that people are talking about this so much is that like, given how bad the offense has been this year, and given that like the way that the sticky stuff has influenced pitching is like, it doesn't necessarily make it cooler. Like with all apologies to like Rob Friedman, like love the, you know, the tunneling gifts and stuff. Like it's all out there. There's also, you know, like so much of a game goes by with, you know, no hard contact, nobody on base. It's like, it really isn't helping, you know, that like if the whole of the sport on average is hitting like, you know, absolute late career Aaron miles, like we fucked up. Like that's not, Right. The baseball that people want to watch. And I think that's maybe to the extent that the league is being sort of dragged, kicking and screaming into addressing it. You know, it's that they're they're actually actively and like in this case, correctly addressing like a problem in the product. Whereas I think like the ghost runner and stuff like that, like I don't think that that's solving a problem as much as it's creating it. In this case, it's like the season hasn't been that great to watch so far. Uh, And you know, it's not necessarily the fault of uh, the makers of Spider Tack or Garrett Cole, the individual. Like, I think there's a, yeah. a bigger, you know, sort of problem here. But like, yeah, it's at the very least, like, it's better to be talking about it than to just accept that this is what baseball's like now. But, you know, in so many ways, this is, and we'll talk to a pretty about this, kind of a monster of their own creation, because 
they didn't do anything about it forever. Yep. And it was just, you know, it was, it was there was tacit approval. Um, you could go, you could, if you were a manager, you could ask the umpires to check someone, but you weren't going to do that because your guys were using it too. Yeah. Um, I think also the other element, I mean, like he expressed it in a kooky way yesterday, but Pete Alonso's idea that Major League Baseball is messing with the balls to impact the free agent market. Like, I think that is ascribing a competence to Rob Manfred that I just have not seen evidenced. Yeah, it gets a little, yeah, we get a you. I mean, look, but you can get a little QE sometimes yeah, in, it the, seems in the baseball a little, player world. And I understand that. And I think that's correct that that's basically what this is. But also, I don't think, I think the assumption of bad faith and cynicism is not off base. I think the idea, no. and you can, the important part of it is that like, I mean, first of all, baseball does mess with the balls uh, and in a way that's like, I think, annoying and unhelpful to the the broader product in general and seems whimsical and which they generally deny, which, again, is not helpful. So, like, the important part is that the players are this suspicious of the organization that's in charge of the game. And like, and I don't think that that's misplaced, even if, as you said, like, there is a little bit of a, you know, like. (laughs) <laughs> like a non vibe to the idea that they're doing it for, you know, like specifically to screw over Corey Seager. Right. And they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're baseball is a weird group. I know one team that is not over the vaccine threshold. And one of their problems was the player wives told all the players that the vaccine makes you sterile. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they're like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Thanks. Thanks for, I, I, where'd you find that? Facebook's that, great. I'm not doing it, you know? Yeah, that's like the all the stuff, the amazing things that you can learn uh, as long as you never read anything that's longer than an Instagram post. You can right. really pick up some dangerous <laughs> truths <laughs> about how messenger RNA vaccines work. And, and I don't think, you know, I don't think this is by design by MLB, but I think they're perfectly fine with players carping at each other in a year going into a CBA. Of course. Like, I, you know, I don't think that was an intention, but I think they're happy with that collateral damage. Yeah, I mean, that's the part of it that that really makes me angriest, I think, is that, like, this is of a piece with the type of neglect and um, I I guess just, like, a a broader sort of, like, reckless lack of care that has defined the last few years for me on the ownership side and also from from the commissioner's office. That, like, I just don't see a lot of uh, farsighted concern for the broader health of the game. And like, I think they ought to start paying attention to that shit because I think that, I mean, this lack of faith, like I don't mean everybody expects there to be some sort of lockout this winter. Like it sucks, but that's definitely the trend that it's been going in. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, like the number of teams that are not actively trying to win the number of ownership groups that are pretty openly about the idea of like, you know, saving money for their owners and not trying to put a competitive product on the field like that hurts the sport a lot and it's going to hurt it you know in the same way that like cutting a few rounds off the amateur draft or cutting these minor league teams you know from different organizations like whatever savings there are in the near term for that like the long-term effects are to me seem very obvious and very obviously bad and if no one in the league office is concerned about that, or if they're just more concerned about, you know, making sure that the miners stay, you know, revenue neutral, even though right. you're finally paying guys like humans, then like they're not doing their job either. Cause like this is, a, you know, there's a responsibility to owning a team. And it's not just to the, you know, whatever like the shareholders in that organization are. Like 
It's to the stakeholders of people that care about the sport and shit. Um, well, let's talk about actual baseball for a second. Oh, um, good. I have some notes on the uh, the guys that the Mets have called up over the last couple <laughs> of weeks. You'll probably be ahead of a lot of the Mets beat writers. Jose Peraza speed run. Let's get it. <laughs> let's open up the Statcast page. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mason Williams going deep the other day. I was like, yeah. I, last night I was like, good for Mason Williams. I had the same experience watching Mason Williams that I imagine that people have had for time like for as long as people have been watching him where it's like initially i'm like he's pretty good and then like yeah. the longer you're watching you're like oh that's mason williams right it's mason williams he's, he's pretty like, pretty that level of good yeah. yeah yeah um so you as we said in the at the beginning you live in new york um the yankees it's thursday afternoon the yankees had a lovely game yesterday they broke out and they hit um 123 home runs against the twins mm-hmm. which is their in-game average against the twins i believe yes and um but before that, there was you know the Yankees were really struggling offensively, just not scoring, and and you know they've had some disappointing performances, and um, until yesterday, Mike Stanton was cold. Um, you know, Aaron Judge was the only guy hitting. Uh, DJ LeMay, who's been uh, a slow start to say the least. Um, it feels like there's a lot of angst in the New York Yankee world. Oh yeah, about you know, and you know, you look at the standings, and they're you know hanging around fourth place, and. Um, you know, everyone wants to, to fix everything and it's time to, to, you know, call Jason Dominguez up and whatnot. Um, you're you're there. Like, what is the level of angst? Like, high to very high. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because, you know, as a non-Yankees fan, uh, it's like, it's not that it's, like, funny to me. Like, I'm, I have enough friends that are Yankees fans. Like, I feel for them in this moment, if, like, broadly speaking, I've got the, you know, Livia Soprano, you mentality <laughs> where Yankees fans are concerned in general. But I do think that, like, it seems very clear to me that they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's, like, pitching maybe not as okay as the hitting and stuff like that, but, like, it's it's fluky that the guys that have been bad have been bad. You know, that like Giancarlo Stanton missing games is like something that you kind of expect. Like DJ LeMahieu did not forget how to hit line drives. Right. You know, and yet, like, I think it's, it's hard for, you know, like, even though it's early in the season and even though a lot of this stuff is going to look, I think, silly, you know, two months from now, like they really have stunk for a while. And they've been like, Losing in the ways that bad teams tend to lose. Like, it's yeah. not the sort of thing where you're just, like, early in the year where the Mets were, were being, when they still had, you know, the healthy guys in their lineup, like, they were losing, and they were losing in these, like, limp and dispiriting ways. But it was, like, I knew that, like, Francisco Lindor wasn't going to hit, like, 175 this year, you know? And, like, yeah. that didn't make it less frustrating when he screwed up. But it was still, like, it was so obviously flukish that I was like, all right, we'll get this out of your system now and we'll go ahead. Like, the Yankees have, have like, looked lousy uh, and with their good guys in the lineup. And, like, I can definitely understand, uh, like, watching that night after night and, like, kind of convincing yourself that it's worse than it is. Right, right. And, it, I, you know, I remember there was a game that was going crappy and, uh, you know... Uh... Brett Gardner very lazily played a single into a double. You now he just kind of jogged over and got it and kind of half-assed a throw. I mean, he, a good throw from him is half-assed as it is, but yeah. like even for him, half-assed a throw. And, and the, the dude just kept running, and it was a double. And, and all of a sudden, the boobers showed up. It's like, oh, they are mad. Yeah, I had the, I was not watching that game online, but I did see uh, like people tweeting, like, it's time to DFA Brett Gardner. And I was like, right. hey, whoa, hey. <laughs> like, 
maybe you're right, maybe you're not, but like, it, like it's Brett Gardner. Like, let him go out on his own terms or whatever. Yeah, I, like, I, you know, I don't, I don't think the Yankees want to play him any every day either. They're just kind of stuck right. doing it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the idea. I guess I understand the frustration. There's just something about it to me that, I mean, I think this is also like people kind of coming back into being fans after uh, spending 16 months inside getting crazier. Yeah. Like, in general, I mean, I think you've seen this in the NBA playoffs, too, that, like, like with all the love in the world to the Knicks fans in my life, like, that was a bit much, you know? <laughs> like, there was... But I get it. Like, it's been a long time since the team and there, was competitive. Been like, and there have been, like, fan incidents in the NBA games, right? With, like, yes. People yeah. getting shit thrown at. And even, like, weird stuff, like, you know, like, airlines are... There's a couple airlines that aren't selling alcohol anymore because incidents on airlines are up, like, 300% or something. Like, yeah, I people think People are pissed. Yeah, and also kind of forgot how to act. Right. You know, so it's like a thin line between, like, whatever it is that people are mad about. And, like, in some of the airline stuff, it's like, you can't wear a mask for, like, you know, however long it takes to fly from Sacramento to San Diego. So, like, an hour, maybe. Like, if you can't manage that, then, like, you're not mature enough to be on an airplane in the first place. But it's like, it's there's a precipitating incident you know like that person's been on airplanes before they just never had to make like one small solitary gesture in the form of a mask right Um, right and they also hadn't previously spent 16 years 16 months that felt like 16 years inside uh driving themselves insane about that prospect yeah uh, my, my my wife and i went out to eat for the first time last week like sat in a restaurant nate nice yeah we're two weeks out from ours and um and we it was, and that felt weird. And there, and either Aussie ways like I totally forgot how things work. Like I, I, I was convinced when we got home that I left my credit card there because I didn't pick it up. Because why would you do that? I don't, don't even remember doing it. I don't remember doing that. You don't. I don't yeah. I remember. I, I can't tell you the last time I used a credit card by handing it to somebody. You know, it's just, it was yeah. very strange. It was all very strange. But yeah, the muscle memory is it. not as no, quick to come back it's as not. you might hope. It's very, very strange. I found myself kind of just like babbling happily, which is, I guess, the best way for mm-hmm. it to come out. But it's like I'm talking to someone that, like, even though they're vaccinated, like, still has to wear a mask. And I'm just like, I can't believe it, you know, but it's a very uh, floral uh, wine. And, uh, you know, it goes really well with it. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, but it's like, <laughs> I'm still remembering what it's like to talk to other people. Yeah. And it's strange. And, and to interact with other people is strange. Yeah. And I mean, in in those form, you know, those sort of spaces where there's rules for it, I think is especially right weird for it. And it, I mean, whatever. This is not to let Yankee fans off the hook for being silly or whatever. But like, especially after last year, which like I think everyone agrees now, like kind of just didn't count. Uh, like Dodgers fans would probably take issue with you on that. Yeah, they but, will. And like honestly, whatever. The World Series was cool. Like I enjoyed it well enough. But it's like that didn't feel right. Like this has this like. You know, there's the sense of the season sort of growing and becoming more normal as time goes by. And yet, uh, like, we're not normal yet. It's not normal yet. Like, that little bit of disjunction can really sort of put you on your heels. Like, and, and, and you know, in any space where it sort of manifests itself. Right. Yeah. No, it's 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 all very, I Yeah. My my unfortunately, my memory of the 20, I got canned on the on the like an hour before game seven started. Yeesh. <laughs> so the best memory of that <laughs> Wow. <laughs> How did that... Uh, can you talk a little bit about it? Is there like an NDA involved? I'll just say it wasn't good. Right, yeah, I mean, it doesn't um, sound ideal, but geez, yeah, that's a... No, it, it's how it works in baseball. Like, I was just called and told I wasn't being renewed, and that was about it. 
like imperial like thanks i don't even know if i got thanks but yeah it was just i was canned and that was that that's sort of i mean we were talking about this the other day at work that that was like when we left Deadspin, so that was like Halloween of 2019. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like the experience, you know, we still had like a Slack channel that we'd set up for ourselves, like just to sort of stay in touch uh, and pretend that we still had a website. But it was weird. <laughs> like that was the night of like the dramatic, like that was game seven of that World Series, which was the Nats won it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like we've got some, you know, fans of that team on our staff. And it was just like we were talking about it. And then the next day, it's like, where a link to an editable blog should be. Everybody was just kind of like, this feels wrong. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't care for this at all. Right. Oh, the good times. A low stakes um, game seven. I, do, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Yeah, I did. You know, it's funny, like 2019 game seven. I, I should write about this at some point. But um, we were in Houston and, you know, it's game seven. And obviously very worked up. And, and um, Margaret just wanted me to get away from it. So we went and saw... Uh, the lighthouse that afternoon before game seven. Oh, a chill, something chill <laughs> to chill, just take your very, mind off stuff. Very chill. Oh, just pretense for what was to come. Was that like? Did you were you like during the game? If you were get, you're like you're you're getting a little too Willem Dafoe here. Like you need to <laughs> step it back. Yeah, yeah, it was a little much. Yeah, bellowing a... hark Triton. <laughs> Somebody comes into the game. <laughs> yeah, I forgot the best game seven thing. Um, We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Britt Jaroli from The Athletic. Uh, more about the sticky stuff and how much of this might be Major League Baseball's fault. Then we'll talk about our musical guest, Breathtaker. Go through your emails. Catch up with David. Have a moment of culture. All those kind of things. So stick around. Delightful.
Welcome back to the podcast. Special guest time. Our special guest is a national baseball writer for The Athletic. She wrote uh, an excellent column this week about the sticky stuff, which is obviously the dominating story in baseball right now. And so joining us from her luxurious accommodations between Baltimore and D.C., it's Britt Giroli. Britt, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. How are you guys? We're doing good. Um, Like I said, obviously, this is the story right now. Everyone's talking about the sticky stuff. Um, It keeps coming and coming and coming. And then you have the Garrett Cole weird presser and it just it's not going away. And, and, you know, the main point of what you wrote this week is that when it comes right down to it, oh, this is kind of Major League Baseball's fault. What, what was what was behind that? Well, I watched the Cole press conference as awkward and uncomfortable as it was. And, you know, it was fun to laugh at him, right, or whatever. And social media was going crazy. And I just thought, is this going to be it now? Are we going to play gotcha with the best pitchers in the league? all of a sudden and act like it's their fault. So I had heard from a lot of players previously for the last story I wrote with Ken Rosenthal, we had guys go on the record for the first time and complain about the sticky stuff, not just hitters, but pitchers. And I kept hearing too, listen, MLB created the baseball. We have no say in that. They have a say in that. They didn't enforce the rule. And they also created a baseball that made it easier for pitchers to pitch, made it more pitcher friendly. Uh, A lot of guys had told me about the seams, really favoring movement pitchers. So what you have here is the perfect storm. And people keep comparing it to steroids, and it does have a lot of the same similarities in that they allowed guys to break the rules, they turned a blind eye to it, and now they want to go back, and those same guys, they want to point a finger and say, you're the bad guys, you're responsible for the problem. And I just don't think that you can sit here in your tower and say, well, it's just on the players. Because when it comes down to your career, your livelihood, your family's livelihood, the difference between being out of the baseball and making millions of dollars, are you going to put some sticky stuff on your hands when guys have been doing it for years without getting in trouble? You absolutely are. It is the league's fault for not enforcing a rule. They didn't need, any, unlike steroids, they didn't need the union's permission. This was a pre-existing pre-written rule and to me it just shows the commissioner's office the lack of authority the lack of enforcement they really thought sending that memo out would be enough to scare players meanwhile players knew it was a bluff i mean you guys remember the pitcher's clock that they got rid of because pitchers pushed back remember that rule where hitters had to put a foot in the box would that last a week because nobody followed it so i i guess i'm just Wondering how the league thought that all of a sudden, if it sent a warning, that guys were just going to stop. I think this shows a lot of bigger issues here. Uh, The erosion of trust continues between the players and the league. But also it shows the league, especially under Rob Manfred, has really struggled to enforce any kind of rules. Like you said, this isn't the first time this has happened. Um, You know, steroids is one thing. Things, shenanigans in video rooms, another thing where things were happening and nothing was being done about it. Um, and, and it gets to the point where it's, it's a pattern with Major League Baseball um, of, of things being decriminalized forever and then finally criminalized. Um, is, do you think this is like the, 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 just the next thing where this happens? Or do you think at some point Major League Baseball is going to change and, and get tired of people like us having to talk about this is the only story in baseball right now, and it's not the games. I hope they're tired of it, but I don't have any 
optimism that they're all of a sudden going to come out with a press conference and say, you know what, we were wrong. Um, I think they should. I think people, especially in the league, often forget that villainizing the players is villainizing your product. I think watching Garrett Cole struggle through that Zoom shouldn't have brought anybody joy on Park Avenue. They, they instead should have the commissioner take the bullets and say, we create, helped create this problem. Um, I don't know what sitting around and watching some of these top guys squirm or get caught, say they do start enforcing it. I don't know how that helps the game, right? I, I, yeah. think, I think they kind of have this look about them. Well, you can't criticize the league. The league will get upset. I think the league should be wanting to take the blame away from these guys. Do you want a sport where your best players are getting crushed in the media? I, I just don't see how that helps the sport either. But I, again, they've never, especially under Manfred, they've never been one to be proactive. So I don't know why this would change all of a sudden where they'd be like, you know what, let's get in front of an issue. They have shown time and time again that they will wait and wait and wait until they absolutely have to react and by then, it's already a mess. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in the first segment, but I think that's like extremely well said and really like kind of the the crux of the whole thing. That like the the level of suspicion on the part of players towards like ownership and like you know and towards the league office itself, like it, like whether it's accurate or not, like you can't say that it hasn't been earned in spades by this point, simply because of the fact that like it really does seem like they have been on this like messaging campaign against players for years that like it really does seem like to me like the league office is paying way more attention to whatever is going to happen when the CBA expires than it is to anything involving the product in the game or the people that play it and like that beyond like sort of poisoning the well vibe wise like at this point like it's had enough of an impact on the actual product itself that it's demonstrably suffering and I don't think that they have whatever like sort of muscles or you know, broader authority they have to fix this stuff, I think has all been allowed to atrophy in such a way that it's like, it's really worrying to me as somebody that cares about the state of the sport. Like, I don't know that they've got it in them to fix it. I don't think that they really know how to do something like that at this point. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you're right. I think also that Rob Manfred is a guy who really cares about image and, you know, the pitch clock's a great example. The players pushed back, he got rid of it or he didn't, you know, we never really saw the pitch clock because the pitcher said they didn't like it. He wanted to please the players. And I think the problem is he so badly wants to please the players. Like the Astros is a good example. They were, those players were offered immunity. And what you saw was the rest of the players get upset. What you saw here was the league thought the players didn't want this enforced. So they didn't enforce it. That was part of the reason why they didn't enforce it. They thought that, well, we don't want to anger the players. And then you have pitchers and hitters speaking to the media on the record about how this needs to get fixed. So I think there's a huge disconnect between what the players want and what the league office thinks the players want. And that's another issue at play here too. Is, is there a huge gap or not gap but but i guess a, a, is there a big diversity in how the players look at this because I, I know that they're you know we saw pete alonso's comments recently and um and i think those are those contrast with with what josh donaldson's saying you know for example and you know it feels like some people really want this fixed some people are like well this is just you know this is mlb's fault and some people are like these pitchers are jerks and it just feels like there's a lot of different messages coming from players right now and and, and their reaction to it you know you're you're in the weeds on this, and I know you've talked to a lot of players about this. 
Um, is, is it that diverse or are most of the players kind of in the same, in the same bucket right now? I think that's fair to say that there's, there's a wide range of opinions. I think most guys would admit right now that the sticky substances have, has gotten out of hand. I think people make the mistake of thinking it's hitter versus pitcher. And one of the pitchers that we quoted in the athletics said, you know, that there are many other pitchers that are just as upset that are not going to these great lengths. Uh, to cheat. So I think when you look at something like Pete Alonso's comments, I don't think the majority of players think there's some conspiracy by Major League Baseball in terms of the free agent class and suppressing salaries. I don't think MLB is sophisticated enough and smart right. enough to pull something off like that. I do think, though, that that anger towards the ball is very real. I think no matter who you pull, the players are upset because in what other sport can they constantly change the ball with no input? from the players whatsoever. So they do control that, and they do control Rawlings. And I think no matter who you are, hitter or pitcher, you're upset about it. And what's happened now, when MLB has refused to take really any accountability, is you're going to see guys now come out more like Pete Alonso, whether it's publicly or privately, and grumble about MLB's role in this. So I think what MLB has done, maybe publicly it looks like players are divided, but privately, I spoke to a bunch of guys today that seem to believe that the next wave we're going to get hit with now is the stuff with the ball. Because MLB cannot blame anybody but MLB for that baseball, for what they've done to contribute to this problem, to the decreasing offense. So I think there are some opinions that differ with the sticky stuff, with how much is too much. Is rosin and sunscreen okay? Most guys agree yes. Um, But I think there are certain things that the players are pretty close to universally united on. And one of those big ones is the distrust in the league and the uh, the accountability factor that the league has shown, just a complete unwillingness to accept any role in any of the problems that have surfaced. Uh, David and I talked about this earlier, uh, you know, and this kind of goes in, in a way to some of the, the, the players carping at each other and things like that. And, and, and some members of the media trying to vilify the players themselves as part of this as opposed to the league. Um, I agree with you that the Major League Baseball isn't, I don't know, organized enough to kind of create such a conspiracy, but it does feel like they're, they're probably more than happy to have this kind of narrative out there, this kind of anti-player stuff going into a CBA. Do you think that's playing any role here, or is it just like happy collateral damage for the league? I think that's playing, like you said, I think the league... He's not upset that there's the Josh Donaldson, Garrett Cole squabbling, but I think players are realizing pretty quickly how silly it would be if they spent this season interfighting and not actually looking at the real issue here, which mm-hmm. is, like we said, and like I wrote, it is the league's inability to be proactive with these issues and, and enable the cheating and enable all this stuff in hopes of you know fixing the game or, or looking at other things. It's unbelievable to me how quickly they were able to get the seven inning double headers and the guy on second base instituted but it's been years and they can't figure out a solution for the sticky stuff it just seems like they pick and choose what rules they want to enforce what they want to actually throw their weight behind and I think if the players are smart 
they'll kind of cool it with these shots across the line at each other, and they'll say, what can we all kind of agree on? Well, the fact that the league has let this go on, the fact that the league has created this problem, and the fact that the league has created this baseball that is changing the game year to year, and it's just simply absurd when you really think about it in in that lens. Yeah, you can see the the short-sightedness of it, like not just in terms of messing with the ball every year, but like again, to go back to this idea of like, a sort of a campaign against the players or like an organized attempt to get them like at each other's throats and off topic as they head into this new CBA negotiation that like the idea that like, yeah, we're going to get them snipping at each other and that's like very savvy or we're going to get, you know, create these divisions in terms of like, you know, alpha free agents and then everybody else having to sign NRIs and stuff like that, like before the, like right before spring training starts, whatever like short term like tactical advantage that affords an owner like strategically it very obviously creates the situation that we have now which is that there's just not only is there there no trust but there's no like mechanism of accountability like for anybody that like and so that like is it's ungovernable right now that like the idea of like what it would take to get players to believe that all of this stuff is going to be handled in good faith or even discussed in good faith by the league office. Like it's a, I think, you know, they've really made that work much more difficult for themselves seemingly just on principle. That's not a yeah. question. I, mean, I'm just, <laughs> I, just, I just was getting mad when you were talking and that's, that's how I feel about it. Um, you know, one of the things that really struck me in, in your reporting on this that I, you know, I didn't know um, was the aspect of, you know, teams actually either employing or contracting with chemists to create better goop. Um, how many teams do you think are doing that? Um, I think a lot more teams than people realize. I think it's more than a few. Um, I heard it from a few guys. I think it dif- it differs. Some teams have these chemists and they're doing a bunch of other things. And in addition to creating the best goop. Wait, what uh, else are they doing? Um, I don't know, but I was told that like some guys are hired and it's not their only role. So okay. I, I, what else would you need a chemist for? Um, <laughs> so that's, that's, that's not a good question. Yeah. Right. Like what? I don't know. Molecular um, gastronomy. A lot of these guys are really into foams, <laughs> flavored right. smokes. Right. Like, are they experimenting with putting stuff on their backs? Is the, like up above the, the, like, you know, the allotted, guy, you know, they can have the pine tar up to a certain point on their bats. Or are they exploring with other stuff? I've heard guys spraying their bats with with clear stuff. Um, so I don't know. Is that something these chemists are doing as well? Cheating is going on everywhere at all levels. That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Uh, but I was also surprised about the chemist thing that I kept hearing. And also that MLB made it so painfully easy to circumvent with that memo saying, hey, we're going to look for an unusual spin rate. And Trevor Bauer, I think, immediately was like, okay, what about the people who already have crazy spin rates, right? And people just largely ignored that. Well, teams went and they were like, well, let's just start these guys cheating in A. So when they get up to the big leagues, no one's paying attention to someone's spin rate in high A. I don't even know if it's sophisticated enough or we have the mechanisms to evaluate spin rates for guys in these lower levels. Lord knows the team that I cheer for definitely does not monitor any of that shit. They don't know how. They do. Those those track men in pretty much every minor league park, so they have that. But my wonder was always just that, you know, if you're going to start confiscating balls and hats and, and taking scrapings off guys' forearms or whatever... And analyzing that stuff, that's fine. But like, what's your control group? I don't. You don't have a control group to start from, right? 
Right. Well, my main issue with, with that, too, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's like, so they sent the memo out thinking that that would be enough to scare these players, which I don't know who thought that was going to do it. But they also started collecting baseballs, and they thought that would be enough. Like, let's really scare them and take these balls. Now you hear they're not going to retroactively punish anyone. So basically what they've been doing, it, we're in mid-June, basically. It's been a bluff since March that hasn't worked. And now they're going to have to go, and now they're going to check these guys. But everybody who was cheating the first two, three months of the season, no one cares. So what about those stats? What about guys having career years? What about even a drop-off for some guys? Mm-hmm. They're still going to get paid based on how they performed. What about hitters? Um, I just think it's crazy to me what the league thought would work based on absolutely nothing. We know the players have no trust in the league. We know they've struggled to enforce any kind of rules. We know they've never really enforced the sticky stuff. But a memo and taking a few warm-up pitches was going to be enough to scare these guys? Who signed off on that? So, Britt, we've had a very grumpy conversation. <laughs> and we've talked about all the bad things. Um, what, what, what I'm is, really interested in seeing what you're going to pivot to now. The cicadas? Gonna... <laughs> like, what, what, is, what do we have, oh, man? <laughs> it's time to pivot to cicadas. Um, but I, I guess, like, you know, I, I think it's it's good to talk about the problem. It's good to, to, to shed light on the problem. Um, what's the solution? Like, like what, what – I think – you know the the players and and major league baseball and however you want to classify major league baseball i could you know whether it be the owners or, or park avenue um seem to be at least on some general agreement that need to do something about it what should be done about this situation um and 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 let's just let, let's accept the fact that we can't change the past what happened what happened there's all sorts of really bad decisions leading up to where we are at 12:21 p.m. central time on june 10th um, but like, what's the solution right now? Well, I think there's, you have two options. One, you create a better baseball, which Buckshaw Walter, who I covered forever, has been saying for years, the Japanese sticky ball, nobody uses anything over there. And I had someone from the KBO, Korean baseball organization, text me yesterday, like, Hey, you know, we've got these great baseballs that nobody needs anything for. I'm like, I know I've heard all about them. So why not? They own Rawlings MLB. What has taken so long to develop a a better baseball that's a little bit tackier? And then you enforce the shit out of the rule. Anything anyone is using, is is, you can enforce it. Guys can no longer say they can't grip the baseball. That's option one. Option two, you stick with the same shitty baseball MLB has and is tinkering with every year. You say rosin and sunscreen. You give these guys the okay to use rosin and sunscreen. They get checked. Anything else that's not rosin and sunscreen... They get in trouble for it. They get penalized. Most players are okay with the rosin and sunscreen. It has shown, Eno Saris did a lot of research on this. It doesn't have these crazy spin rate jumps that some of these other substances do. Mm. So if you're going to let these guys use something, and there is still a camp that says, you know, they do need grip when it's cold, you know, they, certain ballparks, um, certain cities, you know, they need this. So that's fine, but let's use one that actually just helps grip and doesn't all of a sudden turn these fringy guys into all-stars. So I think those are your two best options. Okay, so here's my follow-up. It's not going to be what do you think they should do, but by what so what do you, how do you think the story actually plays out from here until the end of the season? 
Oh, gosh. Um, I thought we were making this a positive conversation. No, um, we're, pivot, we're, pivot, we're pivoting again to the to the darkness. Ah, uh, it's, it's hard to stay away. I think they're going to, they say now the on- onus is on the umpires to check all these guys. So I think some guys are going to get caught. I think there's pressure on them to catch some guys. You think though, uh, You think between now and the end of the season, we'll have at least, we'll, we will have a suspension or, or more. I don't know if they're going to get suspended, but I think they're going to catch some guys just to prove like, look, we're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to know which guys to check and some guys are going to get in trouble. And I don't care what anyone says, there's going to be certain guys they're gunning for, certain teams they're gunning for. Um, I don't know if they're going to suspend them or not, but I think we are going to see some sort of chest thumping. We said we'd handled it. We're handling it by the league. But I think until you get down to the new CBA, until you know you get to that negotiating table, I don't think we're going to see anything really significantly change. Guys are going to just find better ways to hide it and better ways to cheat. It really feels like they've like worked themselves into a shoot to use the wrestling term like they've created a new thing that they have to bargain about now with the with the baseball like in, and like it wasn't like it was going to be easy anyway but at this point like it really does feel like this is like like especially i think like there won't be suspensions cuz they're not going to want to do stuff that gets the pa involved but everything short of that seems to me cosmetic yes i agree and i think if you're the union you're like you know what we need control one of the main things I think that the union should look at in terms of on field is they need control over the baseball or they at least need say in the baseball is the only yeah. instrument on the field. Mm-hmm. They don't have say in. And I think no matter who you are, you don't like that giving that power to MLB. I think that's going to be a big chip for the union in terms of getting some of the game back, getting some of the control over the game back. Britt, before we let you go, is there anything positive you'd like to say about baseball? Uh, I mean, yes, I feel like, (laughs) I mean, I, I think it's important to tell people that I, I hate this sport so much that I want it to change. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to look at it. You know, like I love it so much that I just hate what's happening. And I think there's a ton of young talent. There's so much young, exciting talent. Um, the Padres are really fun to watch. I mean, there's a lot to like about this sport. I like that players are having personality. Yes, the Donaldson Cole thing was kind of stupid, but I enjoyed it. It was it was fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, like, like I love red it. ass is a type of personality. Like yeah. you're allowed exactly. to do that. Like it's fine. Uh, exactly. So I think that that is fun, and I hope we can continue that. You know, I just hope that we can MLB can kind of get out of its own way a little bit and say like, all right, let's let's fix some of this because we have gone way off the rails with 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 the sticky stuff it's gotten completely out of hand let's just find a way to get this off the at least off the non-stop headlines for the end of the season and then address it along with the laundry list of other things they have to address this winter so there is a lot to like about baseball i do enjoy watching baseball i'm going to watch the nationals giants tonight uh, i'm going to see scherzer pitch uh tomorrow i'm going to see gossman pitch for the giants so some, there's been some really good things I'm just tired of watching games and wondering, well, is he that good or is he cheating? That's just not a great way to watch the sport. That's where the the frustrating part is, is that like it should be better than it is. Like, and it's all of the reasons I think that are holding it back are seem artificial and imposed through incompetence. Like it's frustrating. (laughs) So you you said you're going to, you're going, you know, we're going to let you go in a second. I know you got to get to the ballpark. You're going to see the nationals pitch. Um, my question is, have you looked Max Scherzer in the eyes and do they freak you out when it does? Because it had me hypnotized for 10 seconds the first time it did for me. <laughs> uh, he's Yes, he's an imposing <laughs> character. I think no yes. matter if his eyes were the same colors or not, he's an imposing <laughs> character and someone that, one of the few people that like, 
you better shoot straight too because he 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 respects honesty and he does not tolerate people who bullshit. So I, I love him. I think he's very smart. Uh, the game needs more guys who think or just like thinkers like Max Scherzer. But yeah, I'd be lying if I went, didn't say to you guys that like if he answers a question of mine poorly, I, a little part of me inside is like shaking because yeah. he's, he's a little scary. <laughs> I met him <laughs> once and I just couldn't stop staring at his eyes and I kind of got lost for a second. Um, <laughs> okay, last baseball question. Uh, and this is because you're going to go see Max Scherzer. Let's just do baseball for a second. Is Max Scherzer a Washington National on August 1st? <sighs> I say yes, not because I think that they should keep him, but because people that are saying the Nationals are going to sell, when was the last time they sold at the deadline? Mm-hmm. Owner- ownership is not big on rebuilds. Ever since they got good here, um, you know, I would say over the last, what, seven, eight years, they haven't had a rebuild team. They're a team that likes to win. Mike Rizzo is not a guy who likes to sell at the deadline. And I would be surprised if they decided to throw in the, the white flag, particularly because of all the divisions, the NL East, even though the Mets are playing very well, seems to be the one that's still up for grabs. Yeah, there's not really any... There's teams with better records and worse records. Right now, there's not really a team in it that's like so good that you need to just punt the season because you could never possibly catch the team that has Brandon Drury in its lineup every night. You know, like... <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And if you're the Nats, like... From their perspective, you get Steven Strasburg back and he's healthy. You have, like, what is the point of training Max Scherzer for two months? You're going to get, what, maybe a double-A prospect? It's not like you're going to get this haul because he's got four years still or right. something like that that's going to change your organization and your minor league system that desperately needs some help. So I think you, you look at it and it, it makes sense on paper. People like to buzz about it. I would be very surprised if you traded Max Scherzer. Well, Britt, I want to thank you for coming on. If you want to, if you want to read Britt's stuff, just head over to the Athletic, and you can read her writing on the good and the bad in baseball these days. If you want to follow her on Twitter, she's at Britt Giroli, B R I T T underscore G H I R O L I. Do you have anything else you want to plug? No, I think you guys did a great job plugging for me. Checks in the mail. <laughs> 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 thanks for coming on. Enjoy the game tonight. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Britt for joining us for... It's been a dark episode, David. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is the thing. There's a lot of uh, things happening that are annoying, and we have not <laughs> been concealing our annoyance with them. Uh, I guess we could, we could talk about stuff that's cool. Do you want to try it? <laughs> we'll try it at some point. Let's start with the coolness of our musical guest. Oh, all right. It's Breathtaker. Breathtaker is a rock band consisting of two guys, Russ Gasper and Dan Patton. Uh, they first released music under the moniker Breathtaker in 2009. Uh, this is their latest effort, a six-song EP called Bel Composto, produced by uh, Jeff Brickley of Thursday fame. It was released in late May. You can find their music on all major music streaming platforms. Find all of their other links at breathtakerband.com. Reviews of their work have described them as quasi-screamo, atmospheres post-rock, seesaw pop melodies an epic slow building drone sludge and god i love the language that music reviewers use yeah slow building drone sludge quasi screamo i mean that's like in this episode's been quasi screamo. i feel like sort of a little bit (laughs) which is funny because usually the energy level that i bring is a slow building sludge (laughs) you know we don't have ever seesaw pop melodies no i mean it depends who you have on i guess but i don't really have the there's no, there's not a lot of jangle happening in the baseball nah. journo community, sadly. I think maybe like when Stephen Goldman was on, that was maybe seesaw pop melodies. Oh yeah, yeah, he's a real craftsman that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you ready for emails? Yeah, sure. <laughs> email time. Uh, send your emails to us, uh, chinmusic at fancrafts.com. We like getting them. We like reading them. Uh, and again. Uh, as you know, a couple episodes ago, we had on a public defender as our listener of the week. If you are someone who lives an interesting life that I would like to talk to, send an email, chinmusicfangraphs.com, and you just might be listener of the week. And uh, we've had plenty of interesting ones on the past podcast as well, including the guy who trapped hawks at an airport in Alaska. Um, and so please send your send in your application for listener of the week. First email comes from Kaz. Kaz is our good friend. Uh, he writes about prospects over at Baseball Prospectus and lives in the beautiful country of Japan. And Kaz writes, do you look back at your past evaluations? If so, what do you learn from them? As an online evaluator, I'm curious to know what your takeaways are from both when you absolutely nailed it and when you are completely wrong on a prospect. Um, when I absolutely nail it, I move on. And I don't think I learned anything. I think you only learn from your shit. Um, and... The one thing I, I think it's important, like what sometimes you get a guy totally wrong, happens all the time. Um, and I, I, I do look around and say, did anyone think this guy was going to be really great or really awful when I thought he was going to be something else? And if so, what did they know? But there's oftentimes where like everyone thought a guy was going to be great and he just wasn't. Like there was no one running around going, Matt Wieters is not one of the best prospects in baseball. And isn't going to be an all-star catcher. If that guy existed, or girl, I would love to, to, to look at what they wrote and look at that kind of thing and, and see what they got. Um, players change dramatically, uh, good and bad, uh, in, in unexpected ways. They're human beings, um, and, and things happen. And so you only learn from what you miss on, but sometimes you just learn, hey, everyone missed on this guy. Like, no one knew it. Can I Nobody. ask a follow-up on that one? Yeah. Did you identify in your evaluations, like, traits that you were, like, either too into or otherwise? Like, was there, like, a thing that you could, like, correct for where you're like, I just really like sliders too much and it's screwing me? Yeah. Um, 
Yes. And I think, and I kind of flipped over the last few years, really, where I at times got in too much into stuff and not enough into command. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, oh, this guy's I mean, got... You were not the only person making right. mistake. <laughs> right. You're just like, oh, holy shit, look at this, this guy's throwing 98 and look at that slider. It's like, yeah, he's also walking seven per nine. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He can't utilize it. And, and just... You know, as excited as we can get about tools, at some point those tools have to turn into performance, and sometimes they just don't. Um, and just there are guys who can hit, and and I still end up in this weird world where like we can analyze swings and and have all sorts of fun, and and the technology is still way ahead of on the pitchers than is the hitters. Um, but you know, really, one of my favorite scouts in the world, as I remember, he just like leaned into me at one point in the game, and he said, "You know what hitters do?" And I said, "What?" He goes, "They hit." And it's kind of that simple sometimes with hitters. Yeah. Like hitters hit. And I, I think a lot of that's because the technology can't measure like the most important part of hitting, which is hand-eye coordination. You know, we can do all sorts of stuff and measure guys swing and swing efficiency and swing plane and stuff. But his ability to put his hands in the right place so the bat hits the ball is not something I think easily measurable by any sort of technology. And I think we sometimes get kind of hitters hit. That's what makes me interested. I mean, as a, as a non-scouting professional, is, are the, the people that have those kind of like bizarre outlier uh sort of like nick madrigal is like the the obvious one but the yeah. more partisan one for me would like was that whole like hitters hit thing was the mets saga with jeff mcneil where like it was clear you know what he could do and yet like the organization was in denial about it like right up to after <laughs> he did it in 150 plate appearances in the bigs like it was right. clear like it's why they have robinson cano is that they they hired over him because they didn't think that it was real and it's like at some point, like the the measurable stuff that is suggesting it's not going to work has to be outweighed by the immeasurable stuff that doesn't. But I, I guess that's a pretty big leap of faith if it's your job. Yeah, for sure. To be I, measuring but, stuff. But sometimes these guys are screaming at you, you know, and there's, they're, they're absolutely screaming at you that, that they can do something and, and you have to just accept it. And, and like Jeff McNeil's a great example. Like it's clear that Jeff McNeil can really hit. You know, and I, it's not the the sexiest tool package, and he wasn't some highly regarded prospect, but he just kept hitting, and, and he's never st- and he's just he hits, yeah, and you, and, and you just have to go, yep, that's I'm good, he can hit. And I feel like they were like mad somehow that like <laughs> right. the, guys, the guys that they like draft in the yeah. ninth round are like supposed to be they're just like oh, he's a good kid, he went to a college, you know, but like at some point they were like, oh, did we actually miss on this? And right. like, that. That can't be right. Like he must be uh, like w- worse than Daryl Siciliani, who we picked five <laughs> rounds earlier in a different draft. Yeah, and you get into, especially if it's your own guy. Yeah, like you're supposed to know your own players better than anybody, right? And then yeah, this guy fools you. It's it's I you know I mean the Mets under that administration were a weird one. Yeah, it was the most frustrating thing in the world to see them make these deals and like to know that the teams that they were making the deals with knew their own, knew the Mets farm system better than the Mets did. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, you were a part of one of those at the very least, but I think that like they would routinely actually, make deals with these teams and just be like, Oh boy. I negotiated that deal for, from the beginning to the end. It's the only trade I, I did. I saw all the way through was, was, um, was getting Blake Taylor and, um, and a prospect back for Jake Mersnick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Hard to, I mean, it's, it's Blake Taylor. He's a good pitcher. It's not like mm-hmm. the sort of thing where they, they completely got, like, bilked out of it. But it was right. one of those deals where it's just, like, all the, the people I know that, like, watch Mets games because they write about prospect stuff were like, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
but yeah, once they once the Mets get set on a particularly uh, damp looking fourth outfielder, you just can't can't get them off it like a dog with a bone. It takes a nice little player. He's a great fourth That's outfielder. Super good player. He's good, been terrific this year. Fantastic but... defender. He's a really cool dude. Yeah, it's just like one of those things where you know that deal. Like, even if if Taylor hadn't like sort of popped, it was just the sort of thing where it's like. It's the sort of deal that the Mets make after they make the one big move during the offseason. They, like, used to have that, like, sort of, like, rhythm of things where it's, like, you sign one guy so that, like, the Daily News stops yelling at you. Right. And then you, like, get a middle reliever and a backup outfielder, and you're like, all right, we're set. And then you just, like, fuck off for three months. <laughs> and I, we'll, we'll talk a little about Lodge 49 later, but uh, Jake, oh, Marisnik, nice. Jake Marisnik is absolutely dud. Oh, that's terrific. He, he's, he, he's from Long Beach. He's a total surfer guy. He is, he, and, and that's his that's his outlook on life. He is dud. What a fantastic scouting comp that is. <laughs> <laughs> Our next email comes from Ian. Ian says, I read something today about the San Diego Padres having interest in Joey Gallo, and my initial reaction was a bit of an eye roll, grounded in the likely unfair sense that A.J. Preller seems like he's heck-bent, heck-bent, on reacquiring as many of his Rangers Day signees and draftees as he can. <laughs> In your experience, are moves like that where a front office person reacquires their former personnel with a new time ever ego-driven? Like, I'll show them I was right if the guy never panned out to the extent that he or she hoped. Is it more often the simple fact that, like you say, all these guys are damn good at baseball and when you're splitting hairs like that, having the first-hand information experience with that player is a sufficient boost in the go get em column? Um, I don't think... I, I think it helps. I don't think it's like the the the, the, the be-all end all but like they he knows who joey gallo is and like the makeup stuff which is often a big part of trade and free agent stuff that you just know because you know the player um i think a, a almost a better example of this is uh is anthony rizzo continually following around red sox front office people wherever he goes mm -hmm. um like they knew he was a great dude and, the, and also obviously a very good player but they also knew the makeup was off the charts and that's who they wanted to go get and they want him to be part of their team so i think it's more about not being familiar with the player's talent as much as it being familiar with the player as a person that's an interesting answer too because I, I feel like that it's a very like i don't think i'd really thought about the rizzo thing that way but that's 100 percent the way that it's played out mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i guess it's like in terms of the like i can only answer this as like a you know, a fantasy baseball idiot. And like, I just like to get all my guys lined up, but it's gotten to the point where I'm like acquiring injured dudes that I've already suffered for having drafted. But I'm like, well, if I get all the Confortos on all my different teams, then I'm good. <laughs> so it's good to know that there's a little bit more systematic uh, approach among baseball professionals, but also that they're uh, susceptible to the same sort of like, you know, this guy was good for me two years ago or like, I signed jerks and Profar or, you know, whatever version of that there is. Uh, and then they figure out a way to make it work. Our last email comes from Jason. Uh, David, I'm especially interested in your thoughts about this. I think this is always a really fascinating conversation. This is more of a cultural thing. Um, and Jason said, I've spent much time considering the line from the movie High Fidelity, top five musical crimes perpetuated by Stevie Wonder in the 1980s. And my sub question is, is it unfair to criticize a formerly great artist for his latter-day sins? Is it better to burn out or fade away? It's that sub-question and Morrissey. Yeah. I yeah. am. Yeah, go ahead. I am KG, aligned with your lefty sensibilities, and after spending so much of my high school and college days with all those great Smiths records, what am I to do with Morrissey and his pseudo-alt-right white nationalist misogynistic comments of the last 20 years? 
Are there artists you looked up to early in life that mean a lot to you that have become similarly horrible human beings? And how do you reconcile those things? I mean, I feel like this is perfect for you to, and just as a guy that was like <laughs> in a punk scene, like what percentage of, I mean, like obviously it's different with the bands that you're in, but like, Aging punks are like, you do not want to talk politics. Oh, there's a huge chunk of them that become like, yeah, like like the weird, like that, I don't know what you want to call it, like the biker alt-right group. Uh-huh. Like those kind of guys, the, like the big guys with, with big bellies and, and big arms who just want to, and, and like there's, there's certainly an aspect of people who like just kind of joined punk because it was, they, they, they their whole life, and I think this relates to some of the alt-right movement as well. Like, they just wanted to be seen as tough guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've mentioned this before. I, I remember seeing, like, a really interesting speech about um, culture in the 70s and how at some point the overwhelming thing went from respect me to fear me. And and I think that that's part of what happened. And so, so many of them just kind of turned into, I want to be seen as a tough guy. And that was the next move to tough guy was to be this kind of tough guy and Trump's great. And they didn't really care about the politics behind being a tough guy. Um, as long as they were seen as a tough guy and, and there's truckloads of, of people who I grew up with in the punk scene who are just complete fucking assholes now. Um, Cause their whole personal politics were like, I want to be a tough guy. I want to be feared. Um, but then we go back to the Smith. I, 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 I love the Smiths. Um, and I like a lot of Marcy solo stuff, but I guess I can still listen to those records and enjoy them. Also knowing Marcy's an asshole. It can, you can do that. Can you do that? Or do you feel the same way? Or I, you know, I was, I mentioned this question to my wife and we talked about like, you know, Rosemary's baby is still one of our favorite movies. And it was directed by a horrible person. Like, like, how do you, how do you kind of, I don't know, separate or, or deal with those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's 100% right on. Certainly the, like, fear me, respect me thing is, like, it's all up and down the culture. Like, obviously, like, Trump was able to sort of leverage that in a way that um, I still don't fully understand. I mean, the idea of, like, that as a as an arch-tough guy, like... But, I mean, it speaks to <laughs> a, a broader, like, cultural, you know, inability to, like, sort of distinguish between, like... like being an asshole and being strong, I guess. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I, did, I was always good. Like, I get that, like, the, the the fear me and tough guy thing, I get. I just don't understand how Trump became the king of that as a goofball. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah, there's, like, weird soft body, like, priss. <laughs> right. Like, from, like, a golf club, like, being, like... <laughs> but, yeah, whatever. I think that certainly with, uh, like, in terms of, like, to bring this back to, like, the music stuff, I think some of it is that, like, some artists just are doing something that's going to like hit for you really heavy at a certain stage in your life. And then like, if they stay beating the same drum over and over again, like at some point, like you don't need to, to listen to like what I'm, I want to say. This is about like New York hardcore, just cause that was like a big show that happened. Yeah. It's filled with some real assholes now. Yeah. And it was like, but they're like street guys. They're like people who get in fights and stuff. And there's like a time in your life when maybe you are more like that, but like there has to be a time in your life when you stop being like that, you know? And I think for yeah. most people that's like where, you know, there's a nostalgic element to it. What's weird with like artists that, you know, like Morrissey being one example, Van Morrison more recently being like kind of this, like, tragicomic version of it. Right. Johnny Lyons become a real prick. Yeah. And, but like a lot of that is like, if you're, 
you know, for all of those guys, like that they were very like about their own vision and very like sort of like locked in on like creating the like artistic product that like they wanted to create. And like, that's cool, but you can also very easily see, and it produced great work, but you can see how it would curdle, right? That like, especially with like Van Morrison, who was like always an asshole, but sometimes a genius. And then at some point that idea of like wanting to say what you want to say is like, if you don't have anything to say, but that, but the insistence that you like be heard and, you know, like listened to and respected, then like, you're just not a very interesting artist anymore because you're not a very interesting person anymore. Uh, but do you separate things like that from people who are being assholes and just being assholes with someone who was a criminal like Roman Polanski? I mean, Polanski is easy enough for me to give up. I mean, obviously like I, Rosemary's Baby's great. Chinatown is great. Um, there is definitely a point where it's like, I don't think I need to see any, any more of his movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard. Like, I mean, that's sort of like a weird way of thinking about it, but I think it's very much how it gets played out in the culture where at some point, like people are like, okay, moving on from some people who are like basically more shit. Sorry, there's like construction noise outside. Um, that's life. Come yep. On. Whatever. It's good. A little bit of local color. Yeah. Uh, we here on here on the compound, guests. we're always uh, putting up new bunkers and Quonset huts and watchtowers. Yeah, you got to keep that fertilizer dry if it's going to do what you need it to do. The um, but yeah, like that's the part of it that I always sort of wondered about. With like, I mean, it's not for me, but like the idea that like Chris Brown is still around, for instance. Yeah, it's like do you you don't like think that there's other guys that could do what Chris Brown does? Like you you need to keep him around, even though you know what he's like. But and there's, and there's like you know like the, the and they still exist even though this is decades later and I'll age myself but like you know the the weird Michael Jackson fans. Oh yeah, yeah. That I always sort of feel like is like a, a mental illness by another name. Like not to be a jerk about it or yeah, to be insensitive like, about it, but there's that kind like of that, that kind of fandom. Yeah, where you like just kind of like and it's like beyond any sort of like being a fan of the art. Like I feel like that's the part of the like stan culture stuff that is most confounding to me as like an old person who is like still a fan of certain things is that like i you know like i want to hear records and i want to enjoy them and i want to like you know be in a position to enjoy an artist's art i don't really like care about like gigging a streaming thing to get them to number one or whatever and then being like i'm so proud of the person i did that for like that's just like work for free yeah not and you know which is it's hard enough to, for me to do the stuff I'm actually paid to do that right. like the idea of like spending some extra time monkeying around with an algorithm or like voting a hundred times in an online poll like that's cool like I will buy your album maybe that's the thing is that nobody buys albums anymore so they feel like they need to make it up in like right <laughs> like some surf hours on the uh, on the fiefdom. I- I mean, look, Jason, I think it's okay to listen to those Smith's records and just go, ah, it sucks that Marcy's an asshole now. Yeah, I think, I think that's fine. a that's a very adult way of understanding this stuff. I mean, like, what else are you to say? Right. Um, that's that said, it's like the idea, this is something like a drag to just know that, like... The show's a thing, drag. Let's keep it dragging. Yeah, I have to say, like, you can't go see Morrissey now. Like, you wouldn't probably want to do that, right? Because it's, like, it's going to be bad vibes. Like, that part of it sort of sucks. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that, you're right. Like, it, yeah, I don't think I would want to see Morrissey now. Um, and I did see the Smiths once. 
Really? Like as the Smiths? As the Smiths, yeah. Queen is dead tour. It was very interesting. Um, it was in Chicago. I was going to ask. I figured. And um, and I don't really know what happened or what the decision-making process was here. But when we got into the theater, um, this is the Aragon Ballroom, if you know your Chicago music venues, um, they had seats set up, like wooden chairs. Wow. Folding chairs. Was that their request? I don't know. And so, um, and everyone was sitting in them. And it's very strange. I'm like, well, it's weird to be sitting. Because, you know, I mean, you've been to shows. You stand. Yes. And um, and everyone's just kind of sitting there. And I don't even remember who the opening act was. And they were done. And then there was the break. And then the Smiths came out. And it was the most organized, wonderful thing. Like, everyone just kept sort of picking up chairs and passing them back. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they just kind of cleared the whole the whole standing area. I'm as, glad that... As well with all sorts of uh, various confused teens throwing gladiolas all over the stage and um but then the show was over there was this like lit, like 12 foot pile of, of stacked wooden chairs in the back that's i'm glad that you didn't have the like that would have been a real like mixed blessing where it's like yeah i saw them on that tour unfortunately it was a seated show for some reason <laughs> so i was in a folding chair listening to my favorite songs and like yeah. tapping my foot like i was at a fucking like leon redbone concert right the, the crowd fixed that for yeah for us. good that's well, that's nice to think about. See, sometimes uh, punks can be good. They work together to get yeah, things done. Absolutely. Um, so thanks for the emails. If you want to send us an email, chinmusicfangraphs.com. Uh, I do read them all. Uh, Dave, it's time to catch up with you. Oh, okay. You are uh, one of the founders of Defector Media. Um, things seem to be going well for you in this yeah. world of, in the world where things are not going well for most media people. Um and I, I there, there's, I, I read another thing recently about kind of like where media is today and how um, a lot of the successful places are places that have sold on the personalities behind the content as much as the content itself. Mm-hmm. And I think a good example of that in the video game world happened uh, this week, actually, um, where one of the biggest video game sites is a place called Giant Bomb and, and three of their main people left. Yeah, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen there? And they just started their own thing and opened up a Patreon, and all of a sudden they had ten thousand people. Yeah, signed up for the Patreon, and they weren't signing. And there's tons of video game content. I think it's because they really like those people as much as the content. And I think the, the other stuff. Do you see Defector as personality driven as much as it is content driven? Yeah, I think so to a certain extent. I mean, it's it's different. I think uh, it's probably more like the giant bomb scenario than the idea of like when I hear personality driven, like I recoil from it and not just because like my personality is implied to be one of the personalities doing the driving there like that's Mm -hmm. weird to think about and also uh like just feels wrong but i do think that like for us uh you know we had this story and that like we we left deadspin uh because like the situation there had become on you know untenable but like we also had like a demonstrated product that millions of people you know or i got millions of uniques every month and so like it was like it seemed like the sort of thing where we would have been able like a traditional route would have been open to us and yet like that wasn't really a very good deal it wasn't really happening the way that we wanted it to like so the idea of doing it the way that we did it you know as a subscription site and asking you know people to and like just basically sort of doing it on spec in the hopes that enough people would sign up for us to be viable like you know, I'm glad that that worked out. Like it has worked out. Like we are viable. Things are good. And like, we're going to continue to be a website, but like the story behind it was like clearly 
important to, you know, in terms of like to what we were selling. And that's a weird way to, to sort of feel about it. Like, I mean, at some point that's what the market does is it instrumentalizes every element of your life as right, right, to, right. Yeah, to be like, like squeezed for profit. But I think that with, you know, I don't know the, the particulars behind the giant bomb thing. I know, you know, just from following online that the writers that left are like stars, like they're yeah, really, really for sure. Good. Yeah. And the thing that I've been thinking about more, uh, you know, of late, just in terms of like seeing some of the sort of ongoing struggles in conventional media as, you know, they've been sort of now that like, at some point you, as a, as an owner of a thing that you work at, like your interests are different just inherently because of the fact that like, it's yours. Yeah. Then they would like, it's much easier to run it as like what we want the site to be. Like, we're not trying to become ESPN, you know, that like what we want is to like get, livable salaries and health insurance from doing the work that we do and to be able to like have fun and eventually like hire more people and do more stuff. But and there's also, there's, I mean, like you said, and there's no one above you saying, you know, Hey, we talked to the analytics people and we think you should write more about this. Right. And also there's like the interest just in general, because it's like, because it's ours and because all we want is to keep doing it. That's different than what the people that invest in media companies want. You know, that like, that's not what a private equity concern wants when they buy a website, for sure. Like, what they, I don't know exactly what it is they want. I mean, I guess like a place to park debt as much as right. it is a lot of times. But like, doing this stuff as a, like, just a, a cash flow business with that can be like decently profitable and then those profits are like plowed back into the, you know, the entity itself. Like, it's hard to get off the ground and not everyone can do it. But like, once you're doing it, like, if that's what you want it to be, it works. And that's a really, that's part of it has been like gratifying, but it's also frustrating to me to see like, like a lot of sites that I love, you know, sort of either trapped under the thumb of like investor expectations mm -hmm. or just in general, kind of like up against that, like broader austerity of like places that are trying to squeeze a, a margin out of this stuff that just probably isn't going to be there. Do you still follow the gawker stuff a little bit you know i mean i imagine you still know some people there yeah for sure and you and you i'm sure you know some of the people who are now at deadspin yeah i do i mean i think that like so i'm like i still follow those sites you know like i don't uh read them as much i guess but i, I know i don't but i think that like like jezebel has stayed really good you yeah know, like the places that have been able to like have some continuity and were more or less left alone for some reason i think have continued to be good websites they always were good websites and they were always popular websites it's just that that's not this was the part of it that that killed me and that really like made me sad you know beyond like being jobless or whatever but the part of it that like i was despondent about was that like to be a, a website that produces high quality work and makes a little bit of money like i just feel like that has to be enough and it's not Right. I, I Yeah, I'm always right. Inle unless you're in charge of it, in which case it is. But yeah. Yeah, capitalism's a weird thing. And and I always remember, I, I tell the story. I live in DeKalb. It's not a big town. But we at one point, uh, we did have two Panda Express restaurants. Nice. And now we have one Panda Express restaurant. 
Have and you they, found that without the, the market competition that the quality <laughs> of the orange chicken has <laughs> declined in any way? Absolutely not. But, um, but when they close the one, like this, you know, there's it, like, I mean, look, they, I live in DeKalb. When they close the Panda Express, it's actually in the newspaper. And, um, <laughs> and it was in the newspaper and they talked to someone at Panda Express. And, um, and the store they closed was still profitable. It just wasn't profitable enough. And like, that's, that's such a strange thing to me. I'm like, you're doing this thing and it's making you money, but you're going to close it because it's not making you enough money. That's a strange thing to me. It just sucks. And it, it is, it's like, it, I, like, I understand, I guess I understand in the abstract, like how you wind up in that situation. If you're Panda Express Corp, mm-hmm. you know, Omni Food LLP. Right. Some, some data scientist with a nice degree says this, you know, store 7512 just isn't profitable enough. But it's still terribly unfair. And I think that that's the part of it that like. It's beyond the fact that it's like infuriating because you have to go further to get the dumplings that you like. There's also just something about it that like it it's insulting. Like it kind of reminds you uh, like how little you are valued, like at scale, <laughs> you know, by right, right, the right. people that have the most money and the most power. And like, there's only so much you can do with that anger. But like, I think it's healthy to feel it. Like, I think it's definitely like if you are doing good work and it's not valued despite the fact that it's creating value. Like it's easy to blame yourself, but that's not your fault. Like that's the fault of um, the derangement that comes with, uh, you know, money at sufficient volume. Do you ever get, you know, as, as again, like this is, you're one of the founders of Defector. You're in, you're in charge in a way. Um, And obviously, like you said, I think, and I think it's a worthy goal. Like I just want everyone to be able to make a decent living and have health insurance. That's, how i've gone through most of my life yeah um but like do you are you do you ever understand that man if we ever got to this point in terms in terms of pure money just pure revenue like here's something we'd really like to do if we had enough resources oh for sure and that's like the one thing that we have sort of like by doing it this way and by like you know bootstrapping it and stuff like we have enough money to pay ourselves and stuff like we don't have enough we can't do the stuff that we could do at you know gmg or when we were owned by univision because like we don't have a video studio to shoot remember some guys in you know right. we had like a good ass video studio to do that in and we're lucky you know for our podcast that like we do it through stitcher and so they handle the the complicated stuff in terms of ad sales and production and you know putting everything online like we don't know how to do that right uh we could hire people that could do it but like that's the part of it that you that you sort of miss at um you know, just when you're doing it as on a shoestring to a certain right. extent. But yeah, I mean, that's like the whole reason to to keep trying to get more subscribers and keep trying to do more stuff, you know, that like, it's not necessarily, you know, there's this like sort of like fetishization of growth, I think, especially in online, you know, enterprises and stuff like that, where the idea is to just constantly be adding new users, even if you're losing money, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know? And like, I think that era is maybe ending, but there was that period where the, uh, Masayoshi's son and like some of the Japanese investment money uh, that was coming in was just like, it was like important to them that they lose money as quickly as they could because they had all of it. And that was like how they knew that they were being ambitious and aggressive and expanding their stuff. And the end game was IPO and you wanted to have those kind of things in front of people. Yeah. Or, I mean, now that was the, the challenge there was that eventually, like, it became very difficult to convince the investment banks to handle IPOs right. that, like, your sprawling and massively unprofitable business is actually <laughs> whipping ass, in fact, and that, like, it's just not showing up in the numbers. I, but, yeah, I mean, like, for us, like, part of, like, what we want to do 
in why we're still trying to grow is, I mean, we want to hire more people and cover different things. And I think eventually, like, yeah, we'd like to be able to do more of the stuff that, you know, we did together. But yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, I think it's a matter of like what you want to do with it and what the expectations are. And the good news is that because we're all in this together and because we talk about it constantly, like, it's not the sort of thing where we're subject to the whims of someone who wants different things for us. Like not to like yeah. pick the athletic as an example, like the athletic is indispensable, right? Like the work at this point, like they, it, some of it has to do with the atrophying of local sports sections, but like they hired a bunch of really, really good people and yeah. are a baseball fan or a, I guess a soccer fan too, especially like you need to read it. And it's not expensive to subscribe and, you know, like, it's good. I, I want it to stay and I want it to succeed and, you know, I want it to continue to grow. And they're also for sale, it seems. Right. And that's the part of it that's, like, frustrating to me is that, like, the – if they had started and the idea was we're going to create an indispensable subscription-related site that a million people are going to subscribe to and then we're going to find a way to make it profitable and do all the things that media companies do to make it sustainable and that's our business – if that were the case, that would be great because you'd be able to rely on the athletic being able to continue being what it is indefinitely or not indefinitely, but, you know, for as long as, as it's doing the right things. But if it's the sort of thing where like the people that were putting money in it didn't have expectations like that. And if they were like, no, we're going to get like TV rights and we're going to be a TV channel or we're going to be, you know, X, Y, or Z that like at some point then like the people doing the work and the people uh, that are, you know, paying them are like at cross purposes. And that, you know, that's how things like what happened with us at Deadspin like mm-hmm. come to pass is that like at some point you just, you can't please them. You can't do the stuff that the owners want you to do. And that sucks. Like, because like, it's not like the athletics doing anything wrong. Like they're doing everything right. As far as they're, I can yeah, tell. Yeah. I think they do great. But, but they, I mean, what they, they were, I don't want to bust in the athletic, but I mean, they were founded by like a venture capital guy, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's clear that, that it wasn't like a passion project for journalists. It was these guys identifying an opportunity, again, as it turned out successfully. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. now it just seems like they're at that part of the trajectory of like their process, which again is like seemingly make our, quite Which is make different. our money and move on to yeah, the next thing. make your exit and talk about like how much money you made doing this sort of thing. And like, I guess it's, you know, it's hard to be like, you know, it feels defeated to be like, yeah, why can't these rich people be passionate about the same thing that I, a non-rich person, am passionate about? But, like, at some point, like, yeah, the, those two things sort of drifting out of joint is, like, it's it's frustrating to watch and it's worrying to watch. Do you – I guess that's my, that was what I was about to ask. Like, do you see this overall, however you want to call it, this, the structure of, of modern media um, – do you have any hope for it? Is there any signs that it could go in the right direction where I think the, to a the right things extent, are cared about? Yeah, I think to a certain extent. Like, I think that the good news to me is that the demand is really, really strong. Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand very much about how the market works. Um, and I do understand that, like, trying to make money through selling ads on your website that you get, like, some sort of, like, click per, you know, yeah. thousand or million uh, on, like... So that doesn't seem like it works. Like no. no one knows how web advertising works beyond the fact that it's like probably a scam. And like, you know, that stinks. Like it's stressful uh, and it's irrational and, you know, makes you feel bad. But people still want to read this stuff. And I think that there 
is a market for, especially as like sort of a lot of other things sort of bottom out for lack of a, a less distressing term there that like to read something that is good, like it's clear that people are willing to pay for it. I don't like having to ask people for money to read our stuff necessarily. Like I wish there was a better way to do it, but I'm very heartened by the fact that, you know, tens of thousands of people are, are willing to do that. Right. Uh, because it suggests that like, you know, at a reasonable level of like ambition and scale, like this can be done, that people do value it. Uh, enough to to actually pay money for it. And I think that's true, broadly speaking, like across the spectrum. It's just a matter of like getting these outlets into the hands of people whose ambitions are reasonable as opposed to who are all in global capital or venture capitalists or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because what those people want has nothing to do with the health of the institutions or the quality of the work that those institutions produce. Uh, They fundamentally don't like it's immaterial to their goals and like to the extent that this stuff can find its way into the hands of the people that care about it most i think there's reason for optimism it's just like it's clearly a rocky road and it sucks and you do have to like take chances but like if it's working for the giant bomb guys then that's great like i what i let a thousand of those flowers bloom dude because like Mm -hmm. that to me is it's the only way to be sure that the work is going to be uh, good and honest and not influenced by, you know, obviously there's circumstances behind all, you know, all of this stuff that make you sometimes have to do stuff you don't want to do, but, uh, like getting it out from under the thumbs of people that like actively don't value your shit is like the only way to me that I think there's a real path forward. Yeah. It's probably a good time to let everybody know this podcast is probably going to have a Patreon sometime this summer. Again, um, well, there you go. <laughs> Um, I mean, is there, is there currently kind of a next for Defector, other, you know, beyond what is perfectly more than enough of amazing content by great writers? Is, is there kind of like, hey, we want to do this next and we're getting ready to or anything like that? Or Yeah, to a certain extent. Like we're, we piloted a bunch of podcasts and like, I think the hope is that we'll sort of get those produced and up and out where people can listen to them soon. And mm. that's just like, again, another sort of thing that the way that we try to approach this stuff is like talking about it you know within committees it's not just like everybody getting on a zoom call with like 24 people on it or whatever but in terms of like what do people want to do how much time do they realistically have and like you know and also remembering that like the number one thing we're selling is that the website has to be good Mm -hmm. so like we don't want to like get so super far afield like people are paying for the blogs we got to give them the blogs and so that's still job one yeah but yeah, I mean, in terms of like doing other stuff that people might like, like, yeah, we're always trying to figure out ways to do that. It's just like, you know, as with running the website, like there's a lot of stuff to learn uh, that like we just had never had to think about, you know, that you don't have to think about when you're working at an institution because they've like hired people to do it. Right, right. And it's like kind of bracing. My buddy, Josh Benson, who's like helped stand up a bunch of sites like this when we were getting started with it. You know, he had he had started a site and then wound up uh, selling it to like Politico. But it started it was like a New York local news site, uh, city and state stuff. And it, you know, I'd written for him there, and like I was really impressed with the work that they'd done. They were really very similar to us, like guys that left uh, Kushner's like shitty version of the New York Observer to do their own thing, and it worked. Right. And what he was saying was that like it's valuable, even though it's uncomfortable, and even though in some ways it's like opposite to what my personal interests are he's like be in these meetings like listen to the stuff don't pretend like 
selling ads or business stuff like that is like something that you couldn't understand. Like just be there and see what you can figure out and like trust your stuff and ask questions. And I think that that's been part of this process that's been really like invigorating for me and that I'm like proud of beyond the, you know, putting good stories on the internet where people can read them is that like the extent to which it's demystified the stuff that I was like, all right, not my problem, not something I need to think about is like, it doesn't mean that I'm like a business boy now (laughs) because I'm not, and I still don't understand a lot of the shit, but it like is a reminder that it's possible, I guess Mm -hmm. that like you can understand this stuff that like, and that's empowering in it's in a way, you know, like just sort of like knowing that, uh, like how this stuff works and, and how you can fit yourself into it. Like it's not as mysterious as I think it yeah, is yeah. to look. Do you ever worry about your, your, your personal balance in the sense that um, like the amount of time you're spending being business boy takes away from the time you're spending creating content, which is what you did started this thing in the first place for? Uh, I think we've gotten it to a point where that's not necessarily the case. I mean, there's definitely, I have a, an easier, you know, lift in that regard. Cause like most of what I do, it's like podcast related. I like doing that. And mm-hmm. I'm interested in learning more about how it works. But like someone like Dan McQuaid, who does like the merch stuff for us, like that's a lot of work. You right, know? And right, like he right. has to pull together reports and like work with like different contractors in terms of printing the stuff and work with designers. But he likes it. I mean, I think this is like how we've tried to like assign. Right, who like, wants that's something he's, he's does something someone, does someone want to do? This is always your yes. first good question. Yeah. And I think that that's like, I mean, you obviously like as somebody that's had as much like DIY experiences as you've had that like that part of it, like as long as that stuff is delegated properly and it's like fun for the person that it's been given to, then it doesn't feel as much like work, you know? And we have enough people that have a diverse enough sort of like field of interests that like there really are people that want to work on like the culture committee in terms of like figuring out what our employee handbook is going to be like, what our policies are going to be on like, Stuff like that. Like, I just want to know what to do. Like, I don't need to be involved with, like, shaping those policies. But the policies have been really good. And it's because of the fact that the people that are working on them, like, really are invested in the shit. And as long as that's there, as long as there's that sort of buy-in, like, yeah, all of it's teachable. Um, Okay, we'll just plug it. Defector Media, defector.com. It's great. You'll love it. It's really good stuff. You can read David there. You can read... (laughs) Dan McQuay, Tom Lay, Ray Ratto, who's always very funny. Yes, the legend. Um, Getting yeah. to edit Ray Ratto is one of the coolest things uh, that's happened to me as a professional. I, When I was writing like a daily sports roundup blog thing for the Wall Street Journal when I was starting out, I used his stuff all the time because he was like always killer and quotable and like yeah. filed right on time. I mean, it's just like exactly the way that it is to edit him. But like he comes off as so grouchy in his columns. I remember sending him an email once and being like, (laughs) when I was like, just like a pup dork where I was like, Hey man, thank you for keeping my stupid blog afloat with your pithy stuff. And he's like, he would get mad if he heard this, but you know, it's pretty late in the podcast now. He's just the nicest dude. (laughs) Right. Which is, I guess that's like what happens with guys that have, happens with everybody. Yeah. But they have like, you know, this is more irascible. The public persona is the more they're, they like just love their pet. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I, 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 as someone who knows a famous person who gets a reputation for being a complete asshole at times, like people are like, oh, oh, you know Steve Albini? Like, yeah. Like, oh, he's, he's real grating back. I'm like, he's absolutely like, one of the sweetest human beings I've ever I'm met sure in my is. life. Yeah. I mean, I will say that I have not 
heard that many people say that about Steve Albini, but I'm also like the people that I know that met Steve Albini. It was like, but I think he in something... the context of losing at poker to him at an All Tomorrow's Party yeah. Festival or whatever. But know? he also, I mean, it's the it's the same. I think it's the same reason that that maybe Ray has that, which is he just doesn't suffer fools gladly. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that 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 ends up leading to those kind of things. Yeah. Um, time for a moment of culture. Ooh, delightful. So, in the very first episode of Chin Music, very first moment of culture, you told me to watch a show called Lodge 49. That does kind of place our first episode in the continuum of, like, how long this has all been going on. Because I yes. probably had just finished watching it. That was, like, the great accomplishment of uh, one of the, <laughs> the, like, the three good things that's happened to me in the last 16 months was finding that show. Did you like it? Loved it. Oh, so Fantastic. That makes me happy. Uh, absolutely adored it. Lodge Point. It's on Hulu if you're, if you're a Hulu person. Um, and it, it was interesting. So I went, I mean, you just, you know, you gave me like a very brief overview. I said, you know, David Roth likes this. I bet it's good. And it was really good, but I also went in blind. I had no idea what I was getting into. None. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, if I had described it, I would have made it sound worse. <laughs> I think like yeah. it's a strange concept. It's a very strange concept, but ultimately it's just kind of like about your friends or who's around you <laughs> in a way. Yeah. And, but the thing that really struck me was like, I noticed when I started it, it was like two seasons and it started in 2019. And I said, oh, this is going to be like one of those British shows where it, it starts and ends, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't just keep going. And then it was over and I was like, oh, great. I can't. When's season three starting? And that's when I learned that uh, AMC, who originally aired the show, canceled the show. Yeah. And the, the people who made the show did try to shop it around a bit um, to no success. And now it's just over. Which and, it, I think and it depressed me greatly. Lore, but it is depressing for sure. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a waste. Of all the shows that have ended abruptly like that, though, I think that this... Like, it clearly wasn't what they planned, but, like, I'll kind of take it. I mean, yeah, it was kind of clean. But it was uh, still unjust. Yeah, that's the, Yeah, the I was just so upset that that, that was, uh, it was over. But I, I I just wanted to update and thank you for that recommendation very I'm, much. And I loved it. I'm glad you liked it. I mean, I think it's just, like, the, you know, like, most unique is not a, that's a meaningless statement. I think it maybe is even an oxymoronic statement. But it is, like... It just isn't like any other show I've seen. No. It's like so very much about like what it feels like to be getting the short end of the stick in contemporary America and yet is so like warm and funny and convivial about that. Like it's a fucking miracle, man. I'm glad you dug it too. And there's not a single wasted character. Yeah, it's, it's such a nice thing. Like even like like her that her little group of friends from Shamrocks are all are all like, like really deep, funny, well crafted characters like the, the one kind of conspiracy guy with the mustache who's great oh, i love him and he's yeah. so funny and, and you know and her boss and like they're all everyone everyone's really well done and one I, of the the real i guess it's an upside of living in a neighborhood that has rats in it in a city that has rats in it is i have a lot of opportunities to quote his line uh during the infestation at shamrocks where he just deadpans the rat is the king of history <laughs> <laughs> I get to think that to myself like once a month it's not not that tight i prefer to think it once every six months but yeah uh so so for my new thing i'm going to talk about um do you have criterion channel i don't but i mean like we should that's one you pay for yeah we're happy to pay for it um we watch it all the time there's always lots of weird and good stuff on there and um but anyway like so 
it's probably more than a year ago now, like Turner Classic Movies moved into some different tier on Comcast cable mm-hmm. and we don't get it anymore. And we love old movies. We watch them all the time. And um, they currently on Criterion have like a whole collection of Carol Lombard films, who was like a comedian, comedic actress mostly. She did dramatics of two in the 30s and early 40s. She died in a plane crash in the early 40s. Um, but we watched a movie called Nothing Sacred that it was really, it was funny and dark and was like in 1937 and, and just made you realize, yeah, nothing's changed. And it's about, uh, it takes place in New York. It's about uh, a newspaper who gets caught reporting a story where they actually kind of got scammed and the story wasn't true at all. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the reporter is going to get in a lot of trouble. He's like, no, I'll get to the next great story. And there's a woman in this town over in Connecticut who uh, is dying of mercury poisoning or from, from the factory shortening or something. It's a horrible story. And he goes there and he doesn't know that she's actually faking it. Um, it's not her fault. Like the doctor who told her this um, screwed up, but he can't admit it because he'll screw up his career and everything. And she ends up being, they, they end up taking her to New York. She becomes like this cause celeb as like the beautiful dying woman. Um, this sounds appropriately contemporary. Yeah. Like, and so she's the beautiful dying woman. And then, you know, she goes to, you know, the theater and she goes to all sorts of sporting events. And, things like that. and every time it's like, oh, the beautiful dying woman's here. You know, let's take a look at her. And, it, and, and again, it's, it's, it is a depressing, it's a, it's a black comedy. There's a lot of really funny stuff in it, but like, you know, obviously the, 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 the stress this takes on her to the point where, you know, she decides maybe the best way out of this is to actually die. Um, because, <laughs> You know, and she's gotten to the point where, you know, she's she's been given the key to the city and she's been given, you know, and she's everything. And now you can't say now, hey, I'm not really dying. Um, but it, it was just kind of amazing to see this. It was also, in trivia point, the first group all comedy filmed in color, 1937, and it's color. Um, wow. Yeah, it was really strange. Like every single movie in this Carol Lombard collection is black and white, but this one was color. Um, but it was just kind of amazing to see a movie that was 83 years old that like you could make this today and this would be right. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I think there was, like, this big gap, too, where there were movies that were not like that. And yet, like, if you go back to a time that was, like, sufficiently uh, desperate and cynical enough, like, yeah, you can get something that's, like, mm-hmm. 21st century grade acerbic. Yeah. You just have to go to, like, like how were things in 1937? Good? <laughs> 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 right. But, yeah, it's like you got to fit the right tone and mood to it. Yeah, That's 30, cool, though. 37, we were still, we were firmly in, man, we really need a war kind of mentality. <laughs> so. uh, but highly recommend that. If you get, I, first of all, if you don't have Criterion Channel, I highly recommend that. It's well worth uh, whatever it is a month. I, I pay like a yearly thing of like a hundred something dollars. Um, mm-hmm. But we watch it all the time. It's nice to feel like you're, I don't know. I, I don't Just have. having a, a wealth of movies to watch that aren't like whatever Netflix is willing to like allow to share space with its bummy ass originals. Like, Zom- yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, zombie apocalypse and yeah. And I don't. I mean, we. I don't have Disney Plus. I just don't. I. I. I don't do comic book stuff at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't watch it. And I don't watch any of that. And like all of a sudden, like everyone on my Twitter feed is talking about Loki. I'm like, I'm not. I. I'm not doing that. Same. I'm grown. And I never read that shit as a kid, too. No, I, yeah, I never right, Exactly. I never got into it. Like, um, I think a lot of people had the, like, baseball cards and comic books. In my town, it was like, you had to pick, and I made my choice. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> so, like, there's only so much that I really, uh, like, could get interested in it if I wanted to. Right. Also, the MCU feels like fucking work, dude. Like, if you miss one of their dumb bits of IP, you don't understand what's happening in the next one. Like, right. unfair. Yeah, I just, yeah, I'm like, oh, Loki, that's a, only, I know that as a Norse god, I don't know who he is. 
It's all good actors too. Like I'm sure it's like five. Watch those are the ones. Wilson. Those are the ones that pay. Yeah, I mean it's true. That's like the. I guess like at this point, like you can't really say no to stuff like that. And like if it's like if Ethan Hawke or Owen Wilson deciding to do one of those is what makes possible, like whatever Bottle Rocket Two or right, <laughs> like, right, right. Uh, I'm trying to think like whatever. Um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the Paul Schrader movie where Ethan Hawke plays an extremely angry priest. I don't know that one. Uh, but yeah, but like any of that stuff, I think like whatever you got to get paid one way or the other. Right? No, I, I yeah, I never yeah, I never criticize anyone. I actually am always happy for them. Like if especially yeah. if you see like some indie actor like Parker Posey shows up, you're like get paid, Parker. This is right. great. Get, yeah, you, like get, get a get vacation your house. Get like, your you fucking money. earned it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not. I'm not going to watch the movie that you're in here, but I will watch the right. movie that you make with the money that you got paid for right. being. In I'm super one. happy for you. It's, yeah. like, it's like you know, it's still the day you see watching a baseball game and all of a sudden um the ads come on and there's a pixie saw in the background You're like cash that check baby yeah right <laughs> you get it you got a the hard go of it right do your thing what do you got david so for me uh this is like especially because we have had a fairly dark and searching uh episode here which is <laughs> again the energy that's the sludge i bring every time uh <laughs> bring me on but uh so we've been watching uh, Girls 5 Eva, which is maybe the silliest show that I have watched. <laughs> I have no idea what this is, but just the name makes me laugh. It's So there's so many jokes like that, all of them. So the idea of the show, it's on Peacock, which is the NBC yep. subscription thing, which I, so far we haven't minded paying for. We watched the new uh, Michael Schur show on there too, which is called Rutherford Falls. And that's a totally, How was that? totally fun hang. I mean, okay. it's not like, it's like, you know, like, it's a very nice show. Like it has some good, it's less about the jokes I think than about the characters, but I found it very pleasant to watch. Yeah. And my, my wife got crazy into the escape to the Chateau show. <laughs> yeah. To the point where we actually subscribed. So she wouldn't have to watch ads. Yeah. I think that's like basically what happened to us. Like with, so they give you, it's like the, basically the, the sort of the drug dealer business model. Yeah. Where they're like, here, try this sitcom. Do you like it? All right. Are you willing to pay for it now? And then, you know, for us, like, I don't want to see, all the different subscription services that we're somehow just tithing $9 a month to, to never watch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we could conceivably watch them at some point. But right. like, so girls five Eva is uh Tina Fey's <laughs> executive producer, Meredith Scardino, who is a writer for unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which we also enjoyed uh, yeah. is the creator of it. It is the same sort of like density of jokes as like 30 Rock or Kimmy Schmidt. Um, not necessarily the same hit rate, but like nothing has ever had the same hit rate as 30 Rock. I think it's like the funniest sitcom that was ever made. Um, this one is, so it's the Girls 5 Eva is a girl group from like the turn of the millennium uh, that like, like. Like Spice Girls era. So, uh, yeah, sort of. Or like uh, Danity Kane. You know, there's like all these like sort of like. <laughs> Like hothouse grown like MTV things, so it's like they are now forty and like sort of like kind of wind up exploring a comeback because they got sampled by a like a hot young rapper and they got to perform on like you know the Late Show and they're like oh wow we still have it um, and none of them have really like gone on to do other things like Paula Pell is a dentist Sarah Bareilles is just like a mom who works at uh, Dean Winters her like brother's italian restaurant in queens busy phillips uh is playing a character named summer who's kind of just like she and um renee elise goldsberry's character are kind of like famous adjacent but like not but like kind of just like secretly desperate and faking it and the 
you know, there's an element of pathos to them sort of like working together, but like the show is not about that. Like right, the show right. is about like getting off like 300 jokes in 25 minutes. And it, I've had more like good solid laughs at like drive-by gags and then like longer horizon setups and that than I have had watching any other show in well in recent memory. And the, the five Eva gags, there were five of them and now there's four of them. One of them passed uh, like there's so many of those jokes, like like being three together. All of that shit works for me every time. Obviously, I'm not alone in this, but it's just like there's some stupid like little kid gland in my brain, like being like, "Are you for real?" Like I'm five real. Like and they don't overdo it with that, but they are they're in there often enough uh, that I and it works every time. Yes. Oh, I, we should start. We like we're kind of like we like we've talked about being out of shows recently, and so we yeah. we need something. And we started um, Ber- Babylon Berlin on Netflix because someone oh, yeah. doing, and it's really good. But it's not it's not light entertainment. Same for us. Like we tapped you know? out of shows that we like actually liked. Yeah, sometimes like, with, like, yeah, it's like the Love Island thing at the beginning of the pandemic. Like sometimes you just need garbage. Yeah. Um, even if it's good garbage, you still just need something light. I don't want. Yes. Yeah. And like. It, part of the reason that television exists is to show you funny shit, you know, like it doesn't need, I think there's been such a like turn broadly speaking in comedies either to like, like Chuck Lorre making conventional three camera sitcoms. And then everybody else is still like chasing some sort of like, whatever, just absolutely defunct Woody Allen vision where they like Uh, make you think and it's black and white and like, I don't know. So I appreciate that girls five of it like knows what it's about. Not not trying to make a prestige television show. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely check that out. Um, I think we're done here, David. Right on. Uh, thanks for having me. Dude. I th- thank you enough. I, it's, it's always an absolute joy to have you on, and I think you make for the best of shows. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. You can check David's stuff out at Defector Media, which you should subscribe to. Um, right. And that's all. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.